Hello and welcome to the Compassionate Leadership Interview. I'm Chris Whited and my guest today is Professor Michael West, Professor in Organisational Effectiveness and Innovation at Lancaster University and Visiting Fellow to the King's Fund, the NHS Think Tank, formerly Executive Dean of Aston Business School. You can find him on Twitter at WestM61. Michael, welcome. Thank you. How do you become a professor in organisational effectiveness and innovation? And the the title is Professor of Work and Organisational Psychology. Quite how I got here, I don't know. I I think career journeys are uh, often unfolding rather than pre-planned. I left university after my PhD and went and worked in a coal mine for a year. And that was a kind of fascinating, as a labourer, and that was a fascinating experience, particularly because I discovered that the culture underground was one which was completely focused on not productivity and bonuses, but on safety and supporting each other um, and a strong sense of humour as well. And, and that was just a fascinating experience of teamwork in practice. And, and eventually when I rejoined the university sector, then... Uh, in social and what was then social and applied psychology unit here in Sheffield, my focus was pretty quickly on team working in organisations, and I think that may have been a consequence of that experience of working underground and feeling that my safety was really dependent on how well the team that I worked in performed and supported each other. Mm. That's an interesting parallel. I've spent a while working on building sites, and it's mm. a similar thing safety there. I suspect safety is the issue. Yeah. Indeed. For 35 years, your particular area of interest has been the National Health Service. What piqued your interest in it originally? Again, I think these things are often serendipitous rather than pre-planned. I I was working on a piece of research that was looking at what are the conditions in the workplace that stimulate people to innovate, to develop new and improve ways of doing things. And we were interested in the extent to which people had freedom in their roles. So, first of all, we looked at um, a particular group, student nurses, who were very bright, motivated, young people with a strong sense of mission, but actually placed in a work situation where they had virtually no freedom or control. They were they were directed, they had um, little sense of volition. And so what we saw was an enormous amount of frustration and, um, and stress and a very high turnover rate, over 35% of them leaving nursing training. And then we looked at another group of nurses, health visitors, who have much more freedom and and choice and discretion and autonomy in their roles. And and that uh, then led into a focus on the teams that people worked in in healthcare. And we started looking at primary healthcare teams, then community mental health teams, breast cancer care teams, and then the wider culture and context of the NHS. So I think the, these career these career journeys, uh, you often arrive at a station with a sense of surprise rather than having a pre-planned journey the whole way. Yeah, I can identify with that. You've just finished chairing an inquiry into the mental health and well-being of doctors. Why is work-related stress so widespread among staff in the NHS? Well, first, I would say that co-chairing that inquiry with Dame Denise Coyer has been just the most amazing privilege. And secondly, it's been quite harrowing to hear 
about the work experience of many doctors and uh, the, the, the huge stresses that they face in their working lives. And it's not unique to doctors. It applies really to all professional groups in the NHS. And I think one of the key factors is simply chronic excessive workload that virtually everybody in the NHS is coping with what's, I think, become almost like the unseen pattern on the wallpaper, that they have chronic excessive workloads, and that's the number one predictor of staff stress. There are lots of other factors, of course. The level of demands on our health service is that they're increasing, not just in terms of quantity, but the complexity of healthcare issues that people are presenting with. And, of course, we have limited resources, so we're one of the least well-resourced OECD countries in terms of funding for our health service. And that toxic cocktail, I guess, of high demands and low control creates chronic stress, and chronic stress is very damaging to health and well-being in terms of, you know, for our health service staff, cardiovascular disease, addictions, cancers, diabetes, chronic depression... Um, so it's a serious situation and we're seeing that many NHS staff are simply leaving the NHS because they're making a decision about their lifestyles and saying, I can't go on like this. Our inquiry was focused on how we change the workplace factors that affect doctors' mental health and well-being at work so that we make the NHS really the best place to work rather than as it currently is, one of the most difficult places for staff to work. And I think it's tragic because there are people who've made a decision to dedicate a huge part of their lives to caring for their fellow human beings. But we're not modelling the same care in how we care for staff within the NHS. Yes. And and you've turned your attention lately to compassionate leadership. Do you think that's one of the answers to relieving some of that stress? I think compassion is the core value of the NHS. It's why we set up the NHS in the first place, to, to be a compassionate, inclusive service to provide high-quality care for everyone who needed it, regardless of their wealth or status or prestige or background or skin colour or sexuality. It was to be, to, to be a compassionate and inclusive service. And um, we know that compassion has very powerful impact on patient outcomes. It's probably the most powerful intervention that we have in healthcare. Clinician compassion makes a huge difference to patient outcomes. And so the challenge for us is creating cultures where staff can deliver the high-quality, compassionate care that they desperately want to deliver. And that then is about the leadership of our organisation. So our leaders must model compassion in healthcare organisations. And that means attending to staff, listening to staff. I think the most important skill of a leader is listening completely to those that they lead second they have to understand the challenges that staff face and and as i've said those challenges are enormous third they have to have an empathic response as leaders to feel yeah the stress the challenges the difficulties um that staff are facing and fourth they have to help and and that's i think the most important task of a leader is to help those they lead to do to deliver the high-quality, compassionate care they want to deliver. So I think compassionate leadership is fundamental to addressing the challenges that we face in the NHS. In 2015, you jointly wrote a blog with Susie Bailey, lead, her Director of Leadership and Organisational Development at the King's Fund, entitled The Five Myths of Compassionate Leadership. Why did you feel it necessary to dispel those myths? 
Well, I think when we talk about compassion and compassionate leadership, there, there's a tendency for people to think about, I don't know, soft cushions, scented candles, um, fruit and pilates or something. Compassionate leadership is tough. Yoga in my case. <laughs> compassionate leadership is tough. It, it's, um, you know, it, it, it's about really having a strong focus on purpose and quality because the purpose and of our health service is enabling the people of our country to live the most fulfilling, healthiest, wonderful lives they can. And, and compassion's at the core of that. So it's really being focused on purpose and quality. It's, it's being prepared to have tough performance management conversations in a compassionate way. It, it's also about making sure that we don't take an easy consensus route to decision-making. Compassion, our compassion is for the, the, the country, the community, humanity generally. And just simply taking the easy consensus way is actually the opposite of compassion. It's a kind of selfish, self-serving approach to leadership. And it's about recognising that um, compassionate leadership is not allowing ruthless power to win yeah. within our organisations. It's about having the courage to compassionately confront um, that kind of, I suppose, personalised rather than socialised leadership to, to, to really be prepared in the interests of the greater good of the communities we serve to challenge the ruthless um, use of power um, by individuals within our organisations. So it, it felt important to make clear that compassionate leadership is not some easy, soft, unrealistic way of leading. It's actually the right way to lead in all organisations, I believe. So you've talked about listening skills, empathy, courage... Do you think compassionate leadership is something that people can be trained in? Yes, I think that virtually all of us, I would say 99% of us, have. Uh, we're hardwired to be altruistic as a species. So, so we have a tendency to want to help, to be kind, to give to others. And we, we derive benefit from being um, kind. It makes, us, um, it makes us feel good when we give to others. So we've got a good, strong basis in the beginning. We know that we can train people to, if, if we take those four behaviours of attending, understanding, helping, uh, empathising and helping, we know we can train people to attend, to learn to be present through mindfulness practices, for example. We know that we can help people learn to be more effective in understanding and achieving a shared understanding through reflective listening, checking out our understanding of what the other is saying so that we, we're reassured that we have an understanding of, um, of their position. We know that we can train empathy. All of the work on emotional intelligence has shown that we can help people to be more empathic by deliberately and consciously putting ourselves in the other's shoes. One of the ways, for example, we train people to be um, more effective in terms of inclusion and diversity is, is getting them to do things like you know, write two pieces of paper on what it would feel like to be a black Muslim woman working in this organisation the day after a terrorist attack in London. And we know that that has a real effect on pe people's ability to feel what it's like to be the other. And then fourth, helping, I think, is the most important task of leadership. There's something about really raising awareness of, of leaders that the most important task of a leader is to ensure that people have the resources to do their jobs well and to help remove the obstacles which prevent them from doing their jobs well. That's really what fundamentally leadership is about. So I do think that um, we have 
lots of evidence that we can develop compassionate leadership. And, you know, this week I've been in an organization that has um, uh, Cornwall Partnership Trust that is retraining all its leaders in compassionate leadership. And they're very enthusiastic and um, pleased with uh, the changes that they're seeing in the culture of the organization. Yeah, I love uh, that emphasis, by the way, on on helping. You know, obviously, listening and empathy are crucial, but there has to be something that you're doing, I think, action that you're taking as well in in compassion. Well, and and what's interesting about that, Chris, is that if we look at the neuroscience studies, now we have these new technologies, we can look at what's going on in the brain. When we ask people to be empathic and sympathetic when someone's in distress, then what we see, not surprisingly, is that the pain centres are activated. I'm, as it were, mirroring your pain, so I feel that pain. When we ask people to be compassionate, which has got that crucial impulse to help or intent to help, what we see is that the reward centers of the brain are activated. And that, that's what m- marks out the crucial difference, I think, between compassion and simply, th- simply being mm. sympathetic, important though that is. I was talking to uh, Tracy Allen, chief exec at uh, DCHS last week. Derbyshire Community Health Services. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. And... She, she was saying how one of the uh, tasks she was working on was removing as much bureaucracy as possible from the frontline staff. Mm. Uh, and she sees that as compassionate action in itself. Do you think the NHS is doing enough to create compassionate leaders? And what, what do you believe needs to be done? So here we are, 2019, I remember in 2016 talking to the um, executive teams of all of the national bodies of the NHS in England and I was given the privilege of having 20 minutes to talk to them. It was the first time all of those teams were all together in one room and I remember thinking this is a great opportunity to be courageous and to talk to them about the idea of compassionate leadership. Since then, because of the courage and the hard work of many people, Compassionate leadership is now part of the national strategy for the NHS. It's called Developing People, Improving Care, that focuses on leadership development and uh, improvement activities. It's also become part of the national strategy for the NHS in Scotland uh, through their Project LIFT um, initiative in Northern Ireland's NHS and now through the work of Health Education and Improvement Wales, part of the national strategy for the NHS in Wales. But we have to move beyond having national strategies, um, merely, and policies, and ensure that we're developing compassionate leadership in practice. Mm. As you know, I spend a lot of time visiting NHS organisations around the country talking about compassionate leadership. And what's heartening is to see that people respond hugely positively to the idea because I think there's an intuitive recognition that this is the right way to lead, particularly in the context of a a sector, a set of organisations that are focused on providing care and compassion. So I'm really just feeling incredibly heartened and inspired by the spread of uh, commitment to compassionate leadership across the NHS. I think now what we have to do is build on the power of that wave to ensure that we're developing those behaviours in practice for all of those who currently work in the NHS as well as people joining the NHS. In 2017, you co-authored a report by the King's Fund entitled Caring to Change, 
how compassionate leadership can stimulate innovation in healthcare. Uh, and I believe it's the most downloaded paper from the King's Fund site. In it, you note that examples of radical and sustained innovation are exceptions in the NHS landscape. What's the contri- contribution that compassionate leadership can make to innovation in particular? So when you have compassionate leaders, I think a number of things happen. And let's think about the context of an individual team, because it makes it easier, I think, to conceptualise this, that where you have compassionate leaders who are focused on, you know, our, our purpose here as a team is to provide high quality care for the people in this community that we serve, whether it's Derbyshire, Sheffield, uh, Cornwall, Gloucester, whatever. And that focus, that compassionate focus, reinforces the fundamental altruism and intrinsic motivation of healthcare staff. Um, And what it also does is it creates a sense of what my colleague Amy Edmondson at Harvard calls psychological safety in teams, that because there's a leader who attends, who understands, who empathises and helps, it feels safe to talk about concerning issues. I feel safe to talk about an error I've made. And in the context of healthcare, being able to talk about errors is critical, just as it is in the airline industry. If you don't talk about errors, then we don't make it safer. And people are more likely to talk about errors, more likely to talk about their feeling overloaded with work and afraid of making a mistake, more likely to talk about feeling discriminated against or feeling bullied. And it's when we identify problems That's the starting place for innovation. Innovation, I've come to think, innovation is not, you know, sitting in a garden shed and having bright ideas about something. Innovation is about identifying the most important challenges that we face, problems that we face, and, and dealing with them. And what Amy found in her work with healthcare teams was where there was compassionate leadership and, and that feeling of psychological safety, she was astonished to find there were more errors being made by healthcare teams. And then when she probed deeper, she found out that the reason was, was because they were talking about their errors and identifying them Mm. and then innovating. And what compassionate leadership also does is it creates the conditions in teams where people are more cohesive, where they're more um, focused on shared objectives, where they are more supportive of each other, where they back each other up when they're under huge pressure. And we know those are the conditions in teams for for innovation. So compassionate leadership, I think, is absolutely core to creating the the conditions for innovation in in teams where we feel safe to take risks, to talk about concerns, to talk about errors. Mm. Can you provide our listeners with some examples of progressive innovation in the NHS? Um, well, you gave one example when you talked about um, Derbyshire Community Health Services, and and I've seen something similar recently in East London Foundation Trust, which is another uh, another uh, mental health and community trust where they reviewed all of their activities and they cut out seventy two percent of their clinical audit activities. It's the kind of risk regulation, governance, bureaucracy that many NHS trusts are becoming a little bit a- asphyxiated with. And the following year, they cut out another 13%. So 85% of the bureaucracy was cut out. They regularly have break the rules weeks, asking their staff which rules would they break. And by the way, they discovered that around a third of the rules that staff think exist don't exist at all. 
And then what they do is they give staff the responsibility for making change within the organisation. So they ask them, what would you reduce or cut out? And they say things like unnecessary meetings, unnecessary bureaucracy, unnecessary travel to the organisation's headquarters. And rather than the leaders, the top leaders saying, OK, we'll make decisions about some of these they have staff vote on them and give them back responsibility then for making the change. Or in other areas, primary healthcare teams who are under huge pressures, you know, 35% of our GPs in England are saying they plan to quit quit within the next five years. And, And we're already struggling with vacancies. I've been to practices where they are bringing in physiotherapists to deal with the 40% of um, consultations which are about musculoskeletal disorders, back pain, lower back pain, that sorts of thing, bringing in pharmacists to deal with repeat prescriptions, bringing in community psychiatric nurses to, to deal with some of the huge problems of depression that patients um, present with. So they're reducing the workload on GPs so they can spend longer with patients with complex problems. So they've got more time to take a break as well. At the same time, they're ensuring that they're developing the skills and the growth and the well-being of professionals from different groups. So we're seeing a much more effective multidisciplinary team working. And examples of the use of technology, um, University Hospital Birmingham is encouraging patients to Skype call when they have consultant outpatient appointments or to talk to their consultants on the phone to reduce, they hope, by 70% the number of outpatient visits to hospitals which take up patients' time, lots of waiting, it costs money for transport and so on. So lots of innovations going on across the country everywhere. And that, for me, is the most heartening thing, is that we see all over the country really outstanding examples of innovation that are dealing with the big problems that we face in the NHS. Returning to your own career, what do you consider your greatest achievement to date, Michael? I guess what I feel most proud to have been involved with is is that this theme of compassionate leadership. And I think to see compassionate leadership embodied in the national policies of the four UK NHS um, sectors, I, I think I, I've made a, a small contribution amongst many people. And I feel really proud about that contribution. I feel also really proud that I've been able to be involved for the last three or four years with um, a culture and leadership programme, which is a a programme we've designed to help develop leadership in NHS organisations in order to deliver, in order to nurture cultures that deliver high quality care. And we've produced a, a pretty enormous range of modules or tools to support NHS organisations. It's all open source material. Anybody can download it. It's uh, free. It's um, evidence-based rather than just, uh, you know, some kind of consultant model. Uh, So we've used all of the research literature from organisational psychology to inform that. And there are over 100 NHS organisations in England now going through that programme voluntarily, mm. uh, as well as organisations in other countries, um, Scotland, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Denmark, Sweden. And that's in the space of three or four years. And I feel really hugely privileged to have been involved in that and to have made that material, to help make that material available to um, organisations anywhere, really, that um, want to use an evidence base to bring about culture change. 
How would you find that material on the web, by the way? It's if you go to um, the NHS Improvement website and put in culture and leadership, you will go to all of that material and you can download it. Excellent. And uh, well, I, I always ask, I always ask my guests, what is the failure or, or mistake you've learnt most from? Well, so many. I can't, I make them every day, and um, but I think the greatest failure for me was a lack of humility when I was initially in in leadership positions. Uh, I was very focused on success and achieving ambitious outcomes in terms of the research I was involved with. I remember particularly a big project here in Sheffield on manufacturing organisations where we were looking at what made manufacturing organisations successful in terms of productivity and profitability. And it was a hugely ambitious project. And I think I was much more focused on success and the outcomes than I was on the people that I was leading. And I think there was a lack of humility. And I don't know whether that comes from, whether it comes from lack of confidence as a leader. But what I've learned over the years is that humility is really key to being effective as a leader. Um, The humility to say, I don't know. And the humility to recognise that we're all on a leadership journey and that we need to keep reflecting on what do I do that helps, what do I do that doesn't help, and to ask those that we work with to give us feedback on what we need to stop doing, what we need to do more of, what we need to do less of. So I think that, for me, humility is really is something that I learn more and more about. And, and actually what I learn more and more is I don't know. And I think that's a really important space for a leader to be in, to say I don't know and to recognise that uncertainty and ambiguity is the nature of leadership. If there's a crisis, yes, of course, we have to act. But to have the humility to say I don't know in all aspects of leadership is, I think, really important. And to feel all right about that. And to feel really, almost to feel um, more comfortable about that than knowing. Mm. Is there a particular experience or person that you found inspirational during your career? Again, so many. I mean, I kind of meet really amazing leaders every week. And, uh, you know, whether it's um, whether it's the healthcare assistant sitting, holding the hand of an elderly lady in distress, talking to her lovingly and caringly until she's calm again, and seeing the impact of that, or it's um, talking with just inspirational leaders in NHS organisations at every level. Um, There are particular figures that have had a big influence on me. I was really influenced by Nelson Mandela when he was released and seeing him have the courage to go against his followers and to say, we're not going to go to war with the apartheid regime. We're going to try and find a way through negotiation and reconciliation. I think that's one of the most extraordinary um, moments in history by a leader whose compassion for his country was greater than his need to listen to the justified clamour of his followers to say, let's go to war against the apartheid regime. The Dalai Lama's focus on compassion has always been inspiring to me. And, um, and, and I have worked with particular leaders who were really good at appreciating and celebrating the success of and the contributions of those they led that that have really uh, that's really imprinted itself on me the importance of saying thank you and showing appreciation and is there something you'd still like to achieve at, in work or in your leisure life mm-hmm. 
I <clears throat> feel every day that my work life is incredibly privileged. I, I spend my time talking with people working in the health service at every level and in every sector of the health service, mental health services, um, primary care, in the acute sector, in ambulance services, and I feel just hugely privileged. So I, I think, Chris, I don't really kind of aspire to achieving something. I think as long as I have the sense of privilege in making a contribution, that that is all I aspire to. I think we're on parallel lines there too. From your Kingsman biopic, I see you've authored, edited and co-edited more than 20 books and have published more than 200 articles. When I first met you, you said you'd toned it down a bit, and um, but you've published four articles this year and you speak three times a week in addition to chairing the inquiry into mental health and well-being. What does your self-care regime look like? Do you actually have time for one? Yeah, I, it, it's a priority for me. So probably the most important thing is I try to make sure I have time with my family, my children, my wife, my, my mother, who's, who's still alive, 93, and, and probably fitter than either of us. I spend at least an hour a day in meditation. I've practiced meditation since um, my uh, early 20s. I did my PhD on the psychology of meditation, and it's been a central part of my life, um, of my adult life. So I try to make sure I have at least an hour a day um, in meditation. I exercise. I go cycling in the Peak District when, when the weather's uh, uh, pleasant, but I make sure two or three times a week I, I have exercise. And uh, I have the privilege of continuing to learn and grow and read fascinating things, learn from others I work I work with. And, um, you know, the privilege of, of going out and, hopefully making a contribution of giving. And in recent years, I've also tried to make sure I have enough sleep so that I get seven and a half, eight hours of sleep a night. And that that feels really important too. And and I think the other thing is I don't spend time in lots of meetings and with lots of bureaucracy. I try to focus on what will really uh, make a difference out there rather than getting caught up in minutiae or activities that feel like they won't make a significant difference. So I'm very selfish in terms of self-care and making sure that yeah, the day-to-day experience, the moment-to-moment experience of life is rich and wonderful. And and the other, I guess the other thing I'd say is I, I take a huge amount of, um, of nourishment from spending time in nature out in the beautiful Peak mm-hmm. District, in the woods, this week I had the privilege of being down in Newquay for a day and you know, spending just spending an hour on the beach by the, the ocean was yeah fantastic. In 35 years, you've probably learned a little about the NHS. If you were to be put in charge of this national institution that employs 1.2 million people and provides services to a million people every 36 hours, what's the one thing that you would prioritise above all others? I think it's really important when we are when we lead and if we want to be compassionate leaders that we identify the biggest challenges that those we lead face and I think the biggest challenge that people in the NHS face is chronic excessive workload and that's really damaging to health and well-being and it's really damaging to patient care so I would prioritize starting to have discussions in every area of our health service about chronic excessive workload and how we can um, more effectively manage that workload. And as I've said, there are 
really inspiring examples around the country of where that's happening. Um, my key priority would be encouraging everyone to understand that delivering high-quality patient care, delivering high-quality, continually improving and compassionate patient care is dependent on us delivering high-quality, continually improving and compassionate care for staff. And that would be my number one priority. And is there a book, podcast or video that you recommend to aspiring NHS leaders? I've really enjoyed awakening compassionate work. You could go and read a book by Adam Kay about the, you know, the difficulties of being a, a, a doctor, but it, it kind of tells you what the negative things are. Um, but the inspiring book for me is a book by um, uh, Monica Warleen and Jane Dutton from the Centre for Positive Organisations in Michigan called Awakening Compassionate Work, full of really inspiring case examples and making really clear that it's not difficult to create compassionate cultures I think it's just a very helpful, practical, well-written, easy book, and I would encourage every NHS leader to read it. Thank you. And what advice would you give a young NHS leader today? First of all, that it is a huge privilege to lead people who've made a decision to dedicate a huge part of their precious lives to caring for those around them. They are the most inspiring, skilled and motivated workforce I can um, ever imagine. And, and also to recognise, I think, that the NHS, I believe, is probably the most influential institution in our society. 1.4 million people work in the NHS in England. That's one in 20 of the national workforce. If we take social care as well, we're talking about one in nine of the national workforce. If all of those people come into work every day and encounter compassionate leadership and compassionate cultures then they take that back out into their families and their communities. And if the one million people who use NHS services every, what is it, 36 hours, encounter compassionate care, then they take that back out into their families and their communities. So I think the NHS is the most important institution in our society for spreading and developing compassion. And I think compassion is the most important focus we should have now as a species, uh, connecting with each other, uh, seeing that we are one, that we're dependent on each other, connecting with the world around us, with nature and other species around us, seeing that we're one, we're all completely interdependent. And so I would say to that junior leader, you know, you have the privilege of contributing to the mission of this great institution. And it's a much wider mission than simply organisational effectiveness. It's an institution that has the capacity to change the very nature of our society and our experience. And that's an enormous privilege and a great opportunity as a way to spend your life. Well, Michael, especially given your comments about excluding trivia from your life, I'm very grateful that you came in today to give this interview. I feel like I've attended a masterclass in compassionate leadership and it's been fascinating. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Compassionate Leadership interview. You can order Compassionate Leadership, the book, at www.compassionate-leadership.co.uk or on Amazon. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can find me at patreon.com forward slash Chris Whitehead. Email me about the show, chris at danflask-consulting.com. 
This episode was recorded at Rebel Bass Media in Sheffield and the music was brought to you by 96 Back on CPU Records.